Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, you're listening to the Times Redbox Politics Podcast. Coming to you for one last time from me, Patrick Maguire. Yes, Matt Chorley will be back on Monday. But in the meantime, today's pod, and I know I say this every day, really is a cracker. We've got a really, really interesting discussion on the history of political protests in Britain and whether they really work. That's coming up with the author of the Times Political Book of the Year, Phil Tinline in just a moment. But first, time for today's Economist panel. We've got Rachel Cunley from The New Statesman and former number 10 advisor Jimmy McLaughlin talking courts and the police. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, time for our all-star Columnist panel. Today I'm joined by Rachel Cunliffe, Senior Associate Editor of The New Statesman. That's quite the title. Morning, Rachel. Good morning. And Jimmy McLaughlin, he worked at Number 10 Downing Street as an advisor on business and he now presents a podcast called Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, but he's on ours today. Morning, Jimmy. Morning, Patrick. Right, let's get cracking, shall we? Lots to talk about this morning. The first story I want to talk about is... Someone, something that's on the front page of this morning's Times, it's caused considerable controversy over the last 24 hours. It's the intervention from the Home Secretary into the police's handling of the missing persons case uh, of Nicola Bully. Uh, Suella Braverman has demanded an explanation from Lancashire Police over the release of private information about the mother of two who disappeared three weeks ago. The police said uh, she had specific vulnerabilities and then clarified those were significant issues with alcohol apparently brought on by the menopause. Uh, Rachel, do you think the release of these details was at all necessary? Rachel, uh, uh, sorry, Nicola Bully's family have since come out and said they wanted to to be clear about Nicola's vulnerabilities to stop speculation. But it's fair to say the police may have mishandled exactly how they managed this, haven't they? I read the uh, the family statement saying that uh, they wanted the speculation to stop and in particular they were concerned about people selling stories with personal information uh, because of the way that this case has sort of captured public imaginations in really quite a dark way and the family said that they were aware that the police were going to do this. Um, that said, I don't think I'm alone in the fact that when I saw that the police had released this information earlier on this week, just going, why on earth is this relevant? Why is it relevant 
that uh, her, her mental health issues or uh, the, the the state of her hormones. What, what, what does this have to do with finding her? What does this have to do with the case? And it really does look, uh, certainly it did earlier this week, as though it was sort of the police covering their backs because uh, they're are signs that this case has not been handled as effectively as it should have been. And there's more than a hint of victim blaming about this. I mean, you can say this individual was vulnerable and had various mental health challenges, and that's why we need to be careful about it. You can be mm. vague about it, but sort of broadcasting her hormonal status in a way that is often used, whether it was intended to in this case or not, but is often used as a sort of synonym for a bit erratic, a bit unstable, just seems completely unnecessary when it comes to, to actually finding her and more about the police's reputation than about the case. What do you think they should have said instead then? I think you sketched out a, an alternative there. You know, something perhaps a little bit more detailed than specific vulnerability saying, but just something that didn't go into quite so much uh, privacy violating detail as, as that we've seen so far. Am I right in thinking that, Rachel? Yeah, I think you could say mental health challenges and just leave it at mm. that. You know, making the point that there were things going on in this individual's life which may be relevant to the case. And again, making a, a plea to the public to protect the family's privacy and, and stop with the speculation and stop with the kind of DIY sleuthing. You can do all of that without saying, here's her medical history. What do you think, Jimmy? The police have been in a bit of a catch-22 you know, public are demanding information. You've got these TikTok sleuths and quite ghoulish characters congregating uh, on the banks of the River Wire, uh, traumatising the local community and Nicola Bully's family. But in releasing this information, as Rachel says, perhaps too much information, they've attracted even more criticism and undermined the already waning public faith in their handling of the case. Yeah, I think ultimately it's quite a tough situation for the police and it's partly because of the sort of 24-hour news cycle that we live in now, which is almost accelerated with the whole sort of TikTok social media phenomenon, which means that they feel almost compelled to give updates all the time. And essentially there, there isn't really that much more to say. Like it's an incredibly sad situation that everyone seems to be sort of stumped by and it can often be the hardest thing is is not to say anything at all mm. but that's where i think the police have had a bit of a, a challenge with it it does seem to be incredibly sort of detailed personal information and i don't think it does seem to get any closer to finding out what what happened etc um but it is it's incredibly sad and uh, the way that the the town is almost becoming this sort of um, tourist attraction for it at the moment and I think there's a there's a real challenge for what happens because you know a community will need to rebuild itself um, and that's um, that's not going to be easy in these circumstances. And as, as we said earlier Rachel there's a wider issue at play here the Times notes today that women often have to battle to get access to hormone replacement therapy medicine used to treat the medical balls. Uh, women are also often subjected to victim-blaming treatment by police, doctors, the public. And this comes on the back of a number of stories. You know, you think about Dave, uh, David Carrick, Wayne Cousins, which have undermined women's faith in the police. Um, do you think a lot of women are sort of listening to the police in this case and, and drawing a straight line between some of the other cases I've mentioned that have so undermined public trust in them? It doesn't help restore trust, let's put it that way. Uh, and there's also obviously Emma Patterson as, as well, the, the head teacher mm. uh, in, in, in Epsom who uh, was murdered along with her, her daughter. Uh, and the, I think it was the, 
it was one of the tabloid papers, and I'm not going to say which one in case I get it wrong, but sort of did a whole expose about maybe it was her having a really successful job that made her husband snap and decide to, to kill her and their child. So really kind of ghoulish victim blaming there. Um, and there is also a wider issue about women's access to healthcare. I mean, the menopause is something that affects half the population. A fraction of resources are dedicated to, to giving women the, the medical treatment that they need. I'm pretty sure if there was something that affected half of men, we wouldn't have national shortages of the key drug needed to, to help with it. And that is something that women face sort of throughout their lives. Their pain is often not recognised. There are far more studies into erectile dysfunction than there are to menstrual which affect half of all women or even more. I personally have been to a GP and said, I'm screaming with pain for two days a month and I can't actually go into work. Can I do anything about that? I've been told, nah, that's normal. Go to the, go to the emergency room if it gets really bad. I mean, wow. this is kind of the situation that women are dealing with, with public services from health to policing to justice to all kinds of things. And it's all sort of swept under the carpet because it's women's issues. Yes, yes, that's cert- I think that's certainly true, and I think it'll chime with a lot of listeners what you've just said there, Rachel. Just some, just some quick breaking news on this story before we move on. The Information Commissioner has said they will ask the police about their health disclosures around Nicola Bully to ensure they were absolutely necessary. The consensus, both uh, from the public and politicians, seems to be that they might not have been. Uh, so we'll, of course, keep you up to date with that story as it develops here on Times Radio over the course of the day. Now, uh, let's move on. Uh, let's go back to Westminster, or rather, let's go to Japan. With Liz Truss, the erstwhile Prime Minister is going to give her first major foreign policy, uh, policy speech before uh, uh, since she left number 10. Uh, she has demanded Britain stands up to totalitarian China and prepares sanctions to deter Beijing from invading Taiwan. Uh, Jimmy, do you not think uh, a period of silence on Liz Truss's part might have been uh, welcome as far as her colleagues are concerned? She's already back trying to... Uh, you know, put her point of view across. We've had her intervention on the economy. Now she's trying to rewrite Britain's foreign policy. Yeah, well, actually, I think when it comes to foreign policy, there is a place for Liz Truss to have a uh, voice in the debate, etc. You know, she was the International Trade Secretary. She was Foreign Secretary. So actually, her interventions on foreign policy, I think, make a bit more sense than perhaps on economic policy and so on. So I do think there is a case. We do have a lot of for prime ministers now mm. um, and with everyone living longer and prime ministers getting younger as well this is going to be something that we have to kind of contend with more about what do we actually use our former prime ministers for how can they add to the national debate but also in this case the international debate and i do think actually that um, liz truss is playing quite a sort of useful role here potentially because it's very difficult for countries to discuss some of these issues when you're in power and so on for leaders to discuss them. So I actually think there is a there is merit in what Liz Truss is saying here. And I understand why people are being like, well, shouldn't we have a period of silence, etc. Um, but fundamentally, she's a member of parliament as well. So she's going to have a voice on these uh, topics. But I, I know what you mean in terms of when she's billed on the headlines as sort of former prime minister. I think when she's speaking about these things, it would almost be a better way to kind of characterise her as a you know former foreign secretary. As a former foreign secretary who served as foreign secretary for, for some time, as you say, international trade secretary as well. If you bill her as a former prime minister, everybody thinks of the disastrous mini-budget and the 49 days, I think a lot of people in the country would rather forget, not least Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng themselves. Um, but what do you make of this... Uh, Rachel, do you think, uh, as Jimmy does, 
that Liz Truss uh, is worth listening to on these matters? I agree with him that it makes more sense for her to make interventions on foreign policy than on economic policy. But I think there's a political angle with all of this too. The Conservative Party right now is incredibly fractured. There are a substantial number, possibly even a minority of MPs, who believe that we should be taking a very hawkish position on China. And certainly Rishi Sunak's own career coming up as he did through through the Treasury and looking at sort of the economic uh, issues more than, than foreign policy ones, he is much warmer on China mm. than many of his Conservative colleagues, not least because China has the ability to invest lots of money in the UK, which is something that he'd quite like. Now, there's the um, the integrated uh, defence review that's coming up uh, in, in March. And the key question is going to be, is China classified as, as a threat to the UK? Uh, Liz Truss had said during the, the leadership contest that she would do that. Sunak, it's not quite clear. And so I think she is acting almost as a lightning rod for that sentiment within the Conservative Party that says we should be tougher on China. We don't trust Rishi Sunak as Prime Minister to weigh the security considerations uh, against the, the, the possible investment opportunities and the impact on, on the economy. Uh, and therefore, she's sort of, in a way, garnering support and, and making herself relevant again with a faction that already exists and that could cause the Prime Minister quite a lot of headaches. Well, uh, yes, it's certainly interesting. It's not going to go away, this internal uh, Tory debate on China. We're going to take a short break in just a moment. But before then, I wanted to read out uh, some listener contributions to the discussion we've been having. Uh, Rosie gets in touch on the text. Patrick Maguire, maybe it's time for the media to recognise the role they have when it comes to sensitivities over mental health issues. Kate Aidy was so right when she said that the 24-7 media world would lead to conjecture and opinion rather than fact and evidence. Great radio. Uh, that's an interesting interesting point you know we're all looking to fill uh, fill the airwaves and perhaps and when you have social media too there's a constant appetite for new information and that's uh, what the tiktok sleuths and others uh, in lancashire have perhaps exposed and phil in swaddling coat has picked up on something you said earlier rachel uh, as a 61 year old male gp for 33 years i don't think i've ever told a lady with painful periods it's normal so she should just put up with it and go to the emergency room that gets too bad, nor do I fob off menopausal women by victim shaming them, nor, I hope, to 99.9% of my colleagues. Uh, that doesn't chime with your experience, though, Rachel. Uh, it doesn't. I, I'm sure there are wonderful GPs out there. Perhaps the experience I've had is just unlucky. Yes, uh, but I think it's uh, it's a more common story than Phil in Swaddling Coat. No doubt a diligent and uh, and caring GP uh, would uh, would care to imagine. The Justice Secretary, Dominic Raab, has announced this morning that the UK will continue to use Nightingale courts across England and Wales. 11 out of the 12 currently in operation will be kept in service. Stuart Nolan is a solicitor and he chairs the Law Society's Criminal Law Committee. He joins us now. Morning, Stuart. Well, good morning, Jim. Are you pleased about the extension of the Nightingale Courts programme then? Will it help clear the backlogs we're seeing in the criminal justice system? Uh, yes, I think so. Yeah, generally, I think um, any attempt to get rid of the backlog must be welcomed. Um, I fear, however, that it might not be enough. Um, it's all well and good at keeping courts open to deal with the backlog occasioned by the pandemic, but it needs staffing. It needs lawyers, it needs judges, it needs staff in order to make sure the wheels of justice turn administration and um, looking after witnesses and everything that can, goes with it. Um, I think that needs more funding. Um, you've probably heard 
people like myself speak on your programme and others saying there's been a chronic underfunding in the criminal justice system in all respects, police, courts, lawyers, prisons, um, for many years now. Um, it has to be welcomed. I, I can't say it's not welcomed. It's got to be good for witnesses, lawyers, victims, alleged victims, um, and also the general public. And the Law Society is running a campaign on the dilapidated state of courts in the UK more broadly? Yeah, I mean, some of the, as they say, the court estate is in a perilous state. Um, uh, it's um, leaks, it's uh, old-fashioned, not all of it's got the most up-to-date video equipment or communications equipment, uh, facilities for staff, witnesses, witnesses' families, um, in every respect, a lot of the court system is decrepit and it needs updating and it needs funding, crucially. Well, Stuart Nolan, solicitor and chair of the Law Society's Criminal Law Committee, thanks very much for joining us to talk through that government announcement at the UK continuing to use Nightingale courts across England and Wales. The Justice Secretary, Dominic Raab, has said backlogs in the Crown Court have fallen by nearly 800 cases in two months now that the courts are able to run at full capacity. Our measures to tackle the backlog, like allowing courts to sit for more days, are having an impact. Rachel, you've written in your New Statesman column this week that the criminal justice system is broken and neither gaffer tape nor the Tories will fix it. What do you make of this? Well, the gaffer tape there is a reference to the fact that furniture in some of these dilapidated court buildings is literally being held together uh, with tape. I was interested in, in, in sort of Dominic Raab's comments here because there was a huge effort underway in government to frame the backlog as uh, a consequence of the pandemic. You know, courts closed, lockdown happened, there wasn't anything we could do, and we're dealing with it now. And that is just fundamentally not true. Before the pandemic started, in January 2020, the backlog was over 37 thousand for victims of, of serious crimes, so things like sexual assault or, or, or rape or, or, or um, murder cases, people were, the cases were taking over 500 days to get to trial. This is before COVID hit, and that was a direct result of decisions taken since 2010 by various Conservative governments to cut funding for the Ministry of Justice by a quarter and to reduce the number of, of sitting days and basically take money out of the system. So this problem, this crisis, is a long time in coming. Obviously, COVID made it worse, but for Dominic Raab to sort of boast that they are increasing sitting days and they've got these Nightingale courts, many of the Nightingale courts, by the way, are actually being housed in court buildings that used to be owned by the Ministry of Justice, but were sold off in a court cost a cost-cutting measure and are now being sort of released back. This is a crisis of the Conservative government's own making. It's not about COVID and it's very disingenuous to pretend that it is. Is that fair, Jimmy? I think it is fair. And I think one of the problems that we have in our criminal justice system is politicians and civil servants often come at everything from their own experiences. So that's why everyone has a view on how education should be run, because mm. everyone's been through the education system. The problem that you've got with the criminal justice system is it doesn't get taken seriously enough because not enough people, in fact, barely any politicians, have really been through it. And that's why it's a kind of major problem to kind of get the cut through that Rachel's been talking about. So I think it's a great piece that, it's written, that she's written and it's worth reading. Well, thank you. Hey, uh, you know, consensus on the columnist panel. It's uh, it's not uh, well. It's what it's what it's what we're here for. It's uh, recess, Patrick. It's recess. recess. We're that, getting on. That's exactly the point. We're being constructive. Uh, if uh, but do you think uh, Nightingale courts, uh, despite the cost to the taxpayer, Jimmy, are uh, are a good idea, or does this require just briefly a uh, an, a longer term solution? 
I think it will require a, a longer-term solution for how we tackle the issues. Um, I do think the Nightingale, you know, the hospitals and the courts are a reminder of what government can do incredibly quickly when it needs to, and it's a useful reminder of how the public sector can be efficient. That was Jimmy McLaughlin and Rachel Cunliffe. Remember, every day we bring you Economist Panel, bringing you the best insight from the Times' teams of commentators. You can read them on the Times website or just pick up a copy of the paper. If you want to read online or on the app, get yourself a digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to the Times Red Box Politics Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. 20 years ago this week, approximately 1 million people marched through London in an internationally coordinated protest against a Western military operation in Iraq. It was one of the biggest marches in UK history. But despite the protest, Tony Blair went ahead with the war anyway. On Tuesday night, I gave the order for British forces to take part in military action in Iraq. Tonight, British servicemen and women are engaged from air, land and sea. Their mission to remove Saddam Hussein from power and disarm Iraq of its weapons of mass destruction. So in today's big thing, we're asking, do protest marches ever work? We're going to look back at some of the biggest marches of the last 20 years, 20 or 30 years, analysing their aims and achievements. I'm joined now in the studio by Phil Tinline. He's a historian and author of The Death of Consensus, the Times Political Book of the Year. Morning, Phil. Hi, how are you? Very well. Great to be joined by you. Look, your book is all about the moments in British politics where consensus across the political spe- uh, spectrum is subjected to intense strain, breaks down, and a new consensus emerges, be that on economic policy or foreign policy and, and much else besides. Do protest marches often herald a moment where the assumptions of the political class are being more broadly questioned by uh, a populace who feels underserved by them, or... Is this just the pastime of obsessive activists? Well, sometimes it's the pastime of obsessive activists, clearly. Where it's powerful is where it comes together with the numbers of people who don't spend 
all their time thinking about politics, the Iraq War March being an obvious example. I mean, that's organised by the Stop the War Coalition, the Muslim Association of Britain and CND. Now, whatever you think of those individual organisations, platforms, I doubt that everybody on that march would have signed up for all three, right? All three of them, yeah. Um, and another way that it can it can have a sort of indirect effect is, is over time. So if you think about the Jarrow Crusade at the end of 1936, at the time, it's a failure. They march all the way to London with Ellen Wilkinson there, you know, heroic MP as they see her, you know, accompanying them. She weeps at the dispatch box. It's all very sort of, you know, powerful, emotional stuff theoretically. But they don't get anything. They go back on the train as though they've been defeated. And yet what they've done is created an indelible image, which still is one of the sort of you know, iconic images of 20th century British politics, which absolutely roots the consensus that follows the Second World War, which is we must never go back to the mass unemployment of the 1930s. So they don't necessarily have an effect on the day, but they can have an effect in a slow burn. In the same way that that Iraq war march is in many in many ways, ground zero for Corbynism or day one of the movement that later becomes Corbynism. We'll also talk about, over the course of the next half hour, the tuition fees marches in 2010 and 11. You know, as you say, they can reverberate through a political discourse for years to come, even if their short-term aims and objectives, as in the case of Iraq, are ignored. Exactly. And I think sometimes when they take on the sort of the numbers of the kind of events you're you know, you've been listing, it's because there is either a full-on consensus between uh, the two main parties in Parliament or there's a very dominant one and the other uh, doesn't want to go as far as backing a, a protest. If you think about the poll tax, you know, protests in 1990, you know, clearly the Labour Party's position on that is not the same as the Conservatives, but they're certainly not condoning sort of the kind of mass-scale protests that you then see. Mm. If you think about Iraq, the Conservative Party under Ian Duncan Smith is supporting what Blair is doing to all intents and purposes. And so it, that opens up a space where you've got a sort of what you might call a Westminster consensus, you know, where there's a space for those people who don't take that view, of which there are at these points of crisis quite a lot, that, that it, you know, this can then fill. And that's when the activists are no longer sort of obsessives working in the corner, but their organisational skills built up over lots of lonely, very small protests suddenly gain leverage. It's really interesting you talk about how these marches might fail in the moment, but have consequences, longer-term consequences for our political discourse and our politics. Got a text in already, Blair ignoring that march means that Labour can never be trusted again. You know, clearly these stick in the memory, even if they're people just watching at home uh, and, you know, the political responses to them really do, uh, really do matter. Uh, the Iraq war march, it failed in the sense that it didn't stop the war from going ahead, but did it succeed in other ways? Now, I put this question to uh, Sir Mark Rylance. He's been involved with the Stop the War Coalition. He won an Oscar, of course, and he was at that march in 2003. He told me about his memories of that day. I believe there were two million because I set in London because I set off from the Globe and I got no further than Waterloo Bridge. There were so many people. And they weren't the normal protesters that I've seen, you know, uh, protesting to free Mandela or all the different protests I've seen. They, they were people with prams, people from the Midlands, families, children. You could see from the way they were looking around, they, they couldn't believe it. They'd never been in something like this. It, it was an extraordinary expression of democracy. And when Tony Blair ignored that, ignored the 140 MPs who also voted against going into Iraq, my belief in the democracy was in our government was really struck to the core. Are you disillusioned? Do you think, well, it didn't work, we were ignored? Do, do you now think, sort of, do you think all those efforts were in vain? No, I don't think it's ever in vain for people to speak from their conscience. It may, it may, not, it may not be enough initially to change everything. I think it's been a little bit harder for the government to take us into war 
since that war. I know that those protests helped people, particularly I've heard from Egyptians that it helped inspire them to try and change the um, dominating governance that they had in their nation. I, I know I, I think it's very important that people, that when you feel something is wrong, that you, you say it. Phil, is it fair to say, as Mark Rylance uh, just did when he spoke to me earlier this week, that the scale of this march, the Iraq War March in 2003, made it harder for British leaders to take the country to war subsequently or uh, go ahead with foreign intervention? I think it did in that the Iraq situation then developed, you know, in, in the way that we know that it did, that, mm. you know, huge numbers of deaths. It, you know, it wasn't the sort of quick, simple intervention that some of the more sort of gung-ho neoconservatives in Washington were uh, suggesting that it might be. So I think if you put that memory of that march retrospectively next to what then followed, it then takes on a sort of sense of, you know, correctness from the point of view of a lot of people, as well as a sort of righteousness on the day. So I think in that sense it did. And I do think that the scale that he talked about, I mean, whether it's, you know, 0.75 million or 2 million, it's sort of, you know, it's beside the point. It was clearly huge and very diverse and also peaceful. You know, some of the ones we're going to talk about, you mm. know, were, were smaller numbers, more intense, more personally felt. This was about a war going on thousands of miles away, which people deeply cared about. But that's not the same as voting on your, you know, protesting about your poll tax or your tuition fees. And, and the point you make about retrospectivity is a crucial one, because we can draw a line between Jarrow and Iraq here, in that both almost seem to be vindicated by how the subject of the protest then developed, right, be that unemployment and the economy in the 30s or uh, the Middle East in the 2000s. Yeah, I mean, I think once you've, once you've had both the scale of that march and you then had, you know, what follows in Iraq, uh, then, you know, I mean, you have Libya, but you look at what happened with Syria and even when, you know, Obama's red line is crossed, you know, you have that crucial vote in, uh, in the Commons when Ed Miliband doesn't do uh, for David Cameron what Ian Duncan Smith had done for Blair. And, mm. you know, we, 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 you know, the RAF is involved uh, in Syria at sort of, you know, literally uh, at a great height. But, you know, there are no, as the phrase becomes, boots on the ground. And even with Libya, there are no boots on the ground. That becomes a sort of mantra, which I think grows fairly directly out of that march. But there is an interesting point about what uh, Smart Rounds was saying about democracy there, which is, you know, Tim Robbins similarly says on the day, you know, if Bush and Blair don't listen, they have no right to, you know, they have no right to say that they're sort of rightful leaders of a democracy. Well, you know, if you set aside, which is a huge thing to set aside, you know, what was going to happen, whether you thought it was morally right or not, there is a sort of representative democracy, direct democracy sort of split there. I mean, mm. yes, 140 MPs were ignored in Parliament in the sense that they were in the minority in a representative chamber. So, you know, um, it is difficult to kind of get away from that. It's something that we'll perhaps get onto with Brexit, that there is that tension, which you can never avoid in a democracy, between, you know, an on-the-day specific protest about, you know, one decision and the election of a government for you know, a parliamentary term. And if we look at what happened, uh, subsequently happens in the Labour Party, obviously Iraq is a huge watershed moment for the Labour Party, that split between direct democracy and representative democracy, you can see almost a fissure emerging here, or the old Benite fissure re-emerging here. Quite literally, you have Tony Benn and Jeremy Corbyn on the stage in Hyde Park rallying uh, rallying the, uh, the protesters, and you have Tony Blair and others taking the more representative position, right? And then the Labour Party splits 15 years later along those lines. Yes, and you can you can trace that through also, as I say, <coughs> excuse me, to to the Brexit vote, when you end up with people on both sides, you know, attacking the other for sort of breaching democracy because you have one side has the, uh, the, the mandate of the direct democratic referendum and the other has the fact you can't get it through the Commons. We've already spoken about Iraq and the Jarrow Crusade of the 1930s. 
let's talk about some other protests. Let's go back to 1990 and the poll tax. Uh, it's thought over 6,000 marches took place in the first months of 1990. It was a big campaign of civil disobedience as well, and that around three quarters of the population were against uh, Mrs Thatcher's community charge, uh, the, uh, the poll tax, the precursor to council tax. And protest turned out to be a very effective way of demonstrating that disquiet. Yeah, I think so. And I think what you what you have with the poll tax is an, a curious phenomenon that you probably only get in the third term of a government that's had three majorities, or maybe not only, but, you know, it, it seems to go with the 1987 victory, which was, you know, the idea that the Conservatives would win a 100-seat majority in 1987 was not a given at the time. I remember watching that election. And I think this was the first really big policy which produced that sort of response, where it felt, I think, at the time, as though they'd maybe gone a little far. They'd departed too much towards their base and a bit far away from the sort of quite broad consensual position that they'd taken on other things like, you know, trade unions in some ways earlier in the decade. And obviously, you know, many people disagree with that, you know, uh, very strongly. But I think, you know, they'd won elections on the basis of that very, very handily. So I think that that was a point where it felt like there was maybe a little bit of hubris creeping in. Um, <clears throat> and I think you can see that in the nature of the protest. Protest is one word. Actually, some of them turned into riots. Does that impede the impact of a march? Obviously not for a moment condoning, um, you know, physical violence or whatever. But would you say that they turned into riots, famously those scenes of police horses in Trafalgar Square that lots of people listening uh, will remember? Does that risk turning public opinion against protesters or at the same time, does it underline to governments the scale of public discontent? I think both. I think the, the whole point about events like this is they're really multivalent. You know, you have multiple views on what the police are doing, multiple views on what the protests are doing, differences between different groups within the crowd. Then you have the government and the opposition. It brings every, everybody's views together in one sort of mess. So, no, I think that's um, absolutely true. But I think the, the, nation, the notion of, um, of violence, as you say, not to be condoned, does make it harder for the mainstream campaigners. It's very striking that militants who'd been organising some of the can't pay, won't pay stuff came out against the violence that happened that day. The Socialist Workers' Party, as I understand it, did not. But it was a very broad condemnation of it. But, <clears throat> excuse me, I do think that the that some of the controversy about how the police conducted themselves, rightly or wrongly, fairly or unfairly, the image which I remember being clipped and, and shown on TV a lot of a police horse trampling on a woman, I'm sure accidentally, but nonetheless, that was a pretty visceral image of power. I think that sort of uh, complicated the picture. I think if you just had protesters committing acts of violence and there'd been no controversy over the police position, that might have been different. But I think it did therefore neutralise that a little bit, rightly or wrongly, and produce the images you're talking about. And perhaps it does paint a picture of, as you've written, consensus breaking down under the strain of the contradictions of public opinion and political priorities. But let's move on now to 2002 Mm -hmm. and the protest organised by the Countryside Alliance against the ban on fox hunting by Tony Blair's Labour government. Approximately 400,000 people marched through London. Uh, And Tim Bonner, now the chief executive of the Countryside Alliance, was a press officer at the time. Let's hear from him. It was quite an extraordinary day. We spent probably six months putting together a third of a series of massive demonstrations in London. There was a huge amount of nervousness whether people would turn up, which they did in droves. About 407,000 people. It was a great day for many reasons. Huge feeling of camaraderie, feeling of togetherness in the countryside. But in the end, I suppose it is perfectly true to say that it didn't have a huge impact on the course of of the Hunting Act, uh, which was passed in 2004. 
and became law six months later. But what I think it did do is to put down a marker. It put down a marker for rural politics. And whilst hunting was banned, I think politicians from every part of, of, of the House of Commons and actually across the UK uh, looked at that demonstration, looked at the, the long campaign, uh, looked at the damage that was done to, to the Labour Party's relationship with the countryside um, and took note. And whilst um, hunting was banned, we still have an infrastructure in the UK. Hunting still take, takes place in, in a different form. But also politicians have been very wary of taking on other rural issues. And so I think the march, the great march of September 2002, um, did leave a really considerable mark on, on British politics. Uh, and uh, the huge effort um, involved in putting that demonstration together was well worthwhile. The really interesting phrase for me there, Phil, was a marker of broader discontent. It suggests to me, and look, as as Tim Bonner, Chief Executive of the Countryside Alliance, says there, the Hunting Act was still passed. Okay, hunting still takes place, but it didn't succeed in getting the Labour government to change its policy on hunting. But was it perhaps a symptom of a deeper sense of discontent rumbling somewhere in deep England that later found expression through, I don't know, uh, election results, Brexit maybe? You know, a sense of... Westminster diverging from or not representing a big body of public opinion? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's partly a function of having a government with its second huge majority. There was one one placard, maybe more than one, on that march which said, I love my country, I fear my government. And that, I think, is a sentiment that was shared by people who probably were completely fine with banning fox hunting on the liberal left, who were very alarmed by some of the things that the Blair government wanted to do in terms of anti-terror policy, 96-day detention and so on. So I think, you know, when you have a very dominant government, you do tend to get those sorts of expressions. And, you know, in terms of putting down a marker, I mean, manifestly it did. We still, here we are talking about it, you know, 20 years later. I mean, it does also bring us back to that point about representative versus direct democracy. I I remember thinking at the time that, you know, if you say that so many people went on the Iraq war march that the government can't go ahead because it wouldn't be democratic, what do you think about the fox hunting? protest because logically the same thing would apply that that would you know neuter the government's democratic right to you know legislate on fox hunting whether people would have taken that view i don't know let's move on to 2010 now when at least four major marches took place uh, with thousands of students protesting the rise in tuition fees michael chesham was the co-founder of the national campaign uh, campaign against fees and cuts so this new movement of 2010 is actually really short um it takes place over the course of about a single month. It starts on the 10th of November uh, that year with the pretty spectacular occupation of Conservative Party headquarters at Millbank Tower. There's a couple of big days of action on the 24th of November and the 30th of November. And it ends, uh, as it's defeated really, as tuition fees uh, are tripled by parliamentary votes on the 9th of December in, in a kind of a big and actually pretty violent demonstration um, in, in Parliament Square. Um, but it's significant for a few reasons. Firstly, it's the, a moment of real generational awakening, I think. You've got to remember that until this point, the kind of stereotype of young people in the media and politics was that they were kind of apolitical. And all of there was all this um, discourse, you know, how are we going to get young people interested in politics? That kind of seems crazy now. And I think this is the beginning of a moment when all of that changed. But in terms of historical comparisons, and, and this is interesting from the point of view of today's um, anniversary, is that actually the Iraq war did loom large in a lot of the minds of students who were active around 2010. Um, many of us, I mean, I had, I was a uh, kind of a, in the middle of my degree, I was a sabbatical officer in 2010. 
at UCL and I had been a 14 year old student have sort of you know taking part in in walkouts over the Iraq war uh, in 2003 and that was true of many of my contemporaries I think the the big takeaway lesson that we had sort of had from the Iraq war era was this kind of impotence of polite dissent and although these protest movements of course failed as indeed many protest movements do you certainly don't get Corbynism without the anti-austerity movement do you get the anti-austerity movement without the student movement of 2010 probably not at least not in the same form so it was from these protest movements that uh, that the the left returned to the political mainstream in Britain. The impotence of polite dissent, that's a very striking phrase from Michael Chesham there, and it probably sums up where the left went in the Labour Party and outside of the Labour Party in the decade that followed with quite disastrous electoral results. It's very interesting, that indeed. It's, it's stri- it reminds me very much of what was happening in America in the 1960s, and to some extent here in the 1960s as well. You had these quite polite protests about the Vietnam War and the bomb and so on earlier in the 60s, by the time you get to 68, there's exactly that sort of frustration. Well, we've tried being polite. So, you know, it didn't work. So we need to, to do something a bit more sort of full on. Um, so it's very interesting to hear that echo. But no, you're right. I mean, it's interesting that he didn't mention, I mean, he mentioned austerity, didn't mention the crash. And I think that and also the Occupy protests that followed are quite a significant part of that. I think the Treasury is attacked at one point mm. during this. Somebody uh, sprays pay your taxes on uh, Topshop, Philip, Philip Green's uh, Topshop HQ in, in Oxford Street. Now, not for a moment to condemn vandalism or any other criminality but it's interesting that that was how it was being talked about i think the other thing that goes alongside that and james medway who later worked with john, john mcdonald talked to me about this for the book um that there was a, a broader sense that there was a kind of promise broken for young people at that point you, if you go to university before the crash and you emerge afterwards suddenly all the things you're supposed to get as a graduate seem to be going further and further away and i wonder whether the lib dem pledge uh, on tuition fees uh, organised under the National Union of Students, led by One Way Streeting, um, was was part was a sort of encapsulation of that sense of being promised something, and that promise and then denied being it, broken. And, and, and then having seemingly exhausted, as Michael Chesham says, polite dissent, perhaps then people take that view. Now Brexit is another big constitutional issue, a political issue uh, that sparked countless protests. We're landing on Brexit now and the protests that took place well after the decision uh, to leave the EU in 2016. On the one hand, Brexiteers became furious about delays uh, to Brexit Day. Richard Tice, uh, current leader of Reform UK, successor to the Brexit Party, but then co-founder of Leave Means Leave, organised the pro-Brexit rally. The Leave Means Leave march in 2019 was actually a two-week march starting in Sunderland, culminating on Friday the 29th of March in Parliament Square. The idea was actually mine in mid-January 2019. One of those sort of mad ideas you have uh, in the shower, in the bath, just thinking about controversial ways of creating news. And then on the day, on Friday the 29th of March, it grew. It started in West London, We marched along the embankment for a few miles. And by the time we arrived in Parliament Square, it was packed. It was rocking. There must have been 50,000 plus people. And it was a huge, huge event. Uh, Lots of uh, frustration that we weren't leaving the EU. Lots of excitement that we'd really managed to uh, show that we could organise something big and powerful. The media were very sniffy and dismissive. At the beginning of the march with just 100 people up in Sunderland. 
But by the time we got two weeks later to London, there was a real recognition of uh, the growth in numbers and actually just that sense of achievement. And then actually Leave Means Leave became a really well-known brand and thereafter that morphed into the Brexit party and obviously we had very significant success and then we left the EU at the end of 2019. So yes, we we felt that we achieved our objective. Brexit inspires a huge groundswell of grassroots protests on both sides. Richard Tice has just spoken about them on the Leave side. Similarly, lots of people's vote marches. Um, and again, this is a symptom, an expression of frustration that democratic politics, parliamentary politics, representative democracy is being sort of gummed up by disagreements and collapsing consensus. Yeah, I mean, I think this is very different from some of the ones we've been talking about in that there is no dominant parliamentary majority, quite the opposite mm. at that point. And, you know, that you see what happens when a, when a parliament dissolves into, you know, away from uh, one majority party and smaller minority parties into something like um, the sort of, you know, frankly, the mess uh, that we saw. You had this sort of frantic paralysis for months on end. And so, yeah, that to me really did encapsulate the sense of a, a consensus, you know, fully breaking down and one of the things that's curious about it I mean apart from the fact that you have people protesting you know campaigning for a new vote having perhaps not organized marches of that scale before the first vote mm. which is a curious thing you know there's also the sense that, that Dominic Cummings is rather clever about how he positions this as a sort of even the march but particularly the sort of the people who are speaking to the marches you know sort of prominent remainers as a sort of embodiment even though it's a lot of people of a sort of metropolitan London Remainer elite. And so the fact those big marches, people's vote marches, happen in London, in a way, doesn't necessarily produce exactly the symbolism that they may have been looking for. And just finally, Phil, before I let you go, uh, we've got strikes happening now. That's a form of protest. The Don't Pay campaign during the energy crisis, similar scale of uh, programme of civil disobedience that we see in the poll tax, Extinction Rebellion, Just Stop Oil... These various, they're inspiring popular support, but they're also irritating a lot of people hugely. Are we now entering a new age of a new age of protests that speak to the defining generational divides in our politics, be they on climate, uh, the economy and much else besides? A lot of consensus is sort of simultaneously, you know, breaking and reforming at the moment. I mean, the environment is a huge shadow over everything. And so it's not surprising, particularly generationally, that you get protests on that and you get the, uh, the you know, the irritation in response, as you say. But I think it does feel to me like we've been, ever since the crash, as I say in the book, going through this long process of, of you know, messily rethinking where the edges of our politics are. And I think what you're talking about is the, is the sort of late stages of that. Do political protests ever change anything? Phil Tinline there, historian and author of the Times Political Book of the Year, The Death of Consensus, on why and how the answer to that is much more complicated than either side of the debate might want us to think. That's all from me this week on the Times Redbox Politics Podcast. Thanks very much as ever for your company and the tweets, nice and not so nice. Matt Chorley's back on Monday. But in the meantime, make sure you like, share, subscribe and follow this podcast wherever you get yours from. <laughs>